Hebrews chapter 9, we'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 14 this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God reads, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place, the holy places, is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, and immutable word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for blessing us with your word. We thank you for the passage that is before us this morning. We ask that you would help us to receive from your word all that you have intended. Help our minds from wandering on all the distractions that come flooding into them. Help us now to worship you through the study of your word. May we see your beauty and the glory of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated, church. When you think of Christianity, what images come to mind? Now, before I give you some, I actually want you to think of that. When you think of Christianity, what images come to mind? Perhaps you think of the manger, maybe the cross, maybe the empty tomb. And if you were to reach down below the seat in front of you and pull out that hymn book, and you flip through all the hymns, those are common themes to many of the hymns. But there's also a theme, another theme, another image that is given that we see in many of our hymns. And the image I am thinking of is the blood of Christ. We sing about a fountain filled with blood. We sing that we are washed in the blood. We sing that we are saved by the blood of Jesus. And we also rejoice in the power of the blood. The image of the blood of Jesus Christ is central to the message of Christianity. And thus the author of Hebrews now turns our attention there to the blood of Christ. And as we turn our attention to this passage before us in Hebrews chapter 9, 
Let's recall what the author has just pointed to back in chapter 8. He presented us the new covenant that is in Christ. A covenant relationship with God marked by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sin. And now in chapter 9, he directs our focus to the infinite worth of the blood of Christ. But once again, he is contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. And in this text, he refers to the tabernacle in the old covenant with its furnishings and its sacrificial arrangements. And he shows the temporary character of those. But then he then directs all of our attention to Christ, to the eternal things that all those temporary things pointed towards. And thus this argument that he breaks down for us here in Hebrews 9 breaks down in three different areas. We can break it down in three points. First one, the temporary sanctuary that he unpacks for us in verses 1 through 5. Secondly, we'll see the temporary service that he writes about in verses 6 through 10. And lastly, we'll see the eternal fulfillment in verses 11 through 14. So let's begin in his first point here in the temporary sanctuary. Let's read again the opening five verses. We read, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In verse 1 of this chapter, the author of Hebrews informs us that he's going to address two different areas of the Old Covenant. He's going to address the regulations for worship. That's the prescribed priestly service. And that he does as he expounds in verses 6 through 10. But he also reminds us of the earthly place of holiness, the earthly sanctuary, that is the tabernacle. And he quickly summarizes that up in verses 2 through 5. But both the place of worship and the acts of worship are both defined by God himself in the Old Testament. The ordinances of divine worship that the author briefly describes in verses 6 through 10 are the terms that God has defined. And God also gives clear instructions on where that worship was to take place. It was in an earthly sanctuary, or as our ESV translates it, an earthly place of holiness. The author of Hebrews is pointing to the arrangement of the tabernacle. If you are reading along in our church's Bible reading plan, we just recently went through this part in Exodus that describes this in great detail. All the details of the tabernacle. For those of you that did not just read through that, we can describe the tabernacle as a portable temple with a movable courtyard. But don't let that definition fool you. The tabernacle was beautiful. It was stunning. God's design for it was to reflect his beauty and his holiness. The best of all materials were to be used. Gold, silver, and bronze. The finest of linens were to be used. And much of that linen was intricately embroidered to make it beautiful. The tabernacle was not just some simple structure that was conceived by man and thrown together with the best of their ability. No, it was God who gave Moses the exact blueprints for the tabernacle. The author of Hebrews reminds us here in verses 2 and 3 that the tabernacle consisted of two tents or, or two rooms. 
But besides these two rooms, there was also the outer courtyard. And so I want you to paint this picture in your mind as we describe that tabernacle. If we take the measurements from the Bible and we take those cubits and we, we convert those into feet so we understand a little more what that looks like. This outer courtyard was about 150 feet long by 75 feet deep. The total area of that space is about the total area of our entire church. I reached out to Pastor Mark recently and said, hey, what's the square footage of our church? Wow, it's almost exact. The outer courtyard. Cool little tidbit. Doesn't really matter, but I thought I'd throw it out there for you. But that's about the size of it. This courtyard was surrounded by a linen fence that was about seven and a half feet tall. And within that outer courtyard, there was an altar in which sacrifices were made. Known as the bronze altar or the altar of burnt offering, it was a hollow wooden box that was overlaid with bronze. It was about seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet deep, and about four and a half feet tall. If you want to know more about it, you can read about it in Exodus 27 and Exodus 38. But a few steps from that altar was a bronze basin that was filled with water. The priests were to wash their hands and their feet in this basin. Again, all the details about this bronze basin is in Exodus chapter 30. Moving beyond that bronze basin was the actual tabernacle itself. Its total size was about 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. The structure was made with wood, but all the wood that was there was overlaid with gold. And it was filled with fine linen curtains that served as its walls. It had a top of tanned ram skins and goat skins. Again, all of these details in Exodus chapter 26. The first section that the author of Hebrews refers to in verse 2 is the outer chamber. He describes it as the holy place. The holy place was 30 feet long by 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. The author here refers to specific items in verse 2 that were part of God's blueprint for the holy place. He refers to the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. And so let's talk about these briefly. The golden lampstand, we read about it in Exodus 25 and Exodus 37. The lampstand, also known as the menorah, was made of pure gold and had seven branches, three on either side of the main stem, so a total of seven lamps. The priests in their rotation kept these lamps supplied with oil so they could burn continuously. And in addition to that lampstand, there was the table on which was placed what is called the bread of the presence. Again, you can read all about it if you didn't read recently in our reading plan. In Exodus chapter 25, you read this table is about three feet long, a foot and a half wide, and a little over two feet table like everything else made of wood but overlaid with gold including gold rings with wooden poles that were overlaid in gold everything there was absolutely brilliant in Exodus 25 verse 30 we read God's command regarding this table God said you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly and in Leviticus chapter 24, we learn that it is 12 loaves of bread, six in each stack, placed upon this table every Sabbath as a food offering to the Lord. And the bread was to be eaten by only the priests who served in the tabernacle. All of this by God's design. Beginning in verse 3 in our text this morning, the author of Hebrews begins to describe the second section of the tabernacle, the most holy place, also known as the Holy of Holies. But before we look at how he describes this section and how Scripture goes and gives detail of this, we need to address the golden altar of incense. 
We read in Exodus chapter 30 and chapter 37 all about the altar of incense. It too was made of wood and overlaid in gold. But the interesting part is that in Exodus chapter 30, we read that Aaron the high priest had the daily duty of offering incense on the altar of incense. I'm going to read you just a couple of verses from Exodus. Exodus chapter 30, verses 7 and 8. We read, And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generation. And so you say, well, what's so interesting about that? Well, the second section of the tabernacle, the most holy place, the holy of holies, was only accessed once a year by the high priest. The author of Hebrews will tell us more about this in verses 6 through 10. Also, for homework, you could read through Leviticus 16 that describes that in great detail. You say, why do I mention all this? Because of how the author of Hebrews writes this. He describes, and the way he describes the location of the altar of incense, it makes it sound as though it's in the second section, in the most holy place. But Exodus clearly describes the altar of incense. incense. Wow, wrong altar. <laughs> that was in a pagan altar. Apparently, we need to laugh in the midst of all of that, and that was pretty good. <laughs> Exodus clearly describes that the altar of incense, got to be careful with that one, as resting immediately in front of the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And so it's most likely that the author of Hebrews is speaking theologically rather than spatially. He most likely is associating the altar of incense with the most holy place because of the vital role the cloud of incense played in covering the high priest's approach as he passed through the curtain on the Day of Atonement. Now with that address, let's turn our attention back to this second section of the tabernacle, the most holy place, the holy of holies. The Bible describes it as a perfect cube. 15 feet wide, 15 feet deep, and 15 feet tall. It was separated from the first section, the holy place, by a thick curtain or a veil. That veil was beautifully embroidered. It was linen of blue and purple and scarlet. It had embroidered in it pictures of cherubim that were all sewn beautifully in it. Now, the image that we're painting as we look to this tabernacle is one of absolute brilliance. It is beautiful. And this holy of holies, this perfect cube, it's supported by golden overlaid or wood that's overlaid with gold. This place was completely exquisite. And inside of there sat the Ark of the Covenant. And since I've given dimensions for everything else so far, the ark was about 45 inches long, 25 or 27 inches in width and both height. So about that high. It too was covered with gold. And in it, you would find a golden urn that contained some manna that had fallen from heaven to feed the Israelites during their wanderings. In the wilderness. It also held Aaron's rod and the tablets of stone on which had been inscribed the Ten Commandments. And on top of it, there was a slab of pure gold, not wood that's overlaid with gold, but a slab of pure gold called the mercy seat. And on top of that mercy seat were two golden figures of cherubim facing each other. They were called the cherubim of glory because it was between them that the glory of God's presence appeared. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, God says, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you. 
The author of Hebrews in verse 5, after summarizing these two areas of the tabernacle, he says this, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Much has been recorded, and the original audience knew much about it. His point was not to dive deeply into these details. That was not the point. We took a little bit more time to describe it because many of us aren't as familiar with the tabernacle as the original recipients were who received this letter. It's the earthly place of holiness. Is the tabernacle, and it was absolutely, incredibly beautiful. It was exactly as God designed. It reflected his holiness and his beauty. Everything in the tabernacle and later in the temple pointed to the glory, the splendor, and the holiness of God. But it was also a picture that pointed to a person. It was only temporary because the one it all pointed to was coming and has now come. But before we get ahead of our passage this morning, the author points out that not only was it a temporary sanctuary, but we see in the second point that there was temporary service there as well. So looking at our second point, the temporary service, look again to your Bibles in verses 6 through 10. I'll read it again for us, starting in verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation." Here the author of Hebrews does, as he's been doing, he's contrasting the old covenant and he's going to go into contrasting it with the new covenant. But he's contrasting the priestly access to the first and second section of the tabernacle. Remember, it was that second section, the most holy place, the holy of holies where God dwelt. The author points out in verse 6 that the priest go regularly or daily into the first section of the tabernacle, into the, the holy place. But then he contrasts that priestly work with what takes place in the second section, the most holy place. And in verse 7, you'll see he starts with that contrasting word. He says, but, but the high priest only goes into the second section once a year. Only annually did he get to go into the most holy place where God dwells. The author's point here of contrasting this, he's pointing to the access that we have to God. That under the old covenant, that access was very limited. Though the priest can come into the first section, the holy place, then come there every day and serve God, they were reminded by the second curtain, the one that separated the holy place from the most holy place, that they did not have regular access to God. Verse 7 tells us that he entered only one day a year with blood from a sacrifice to cover his sins and also to cover those of the people. That one day, the day of atonement, emphasized the separation between a holy God and an unholy people. That only on that day was man allowed to come into his presence. But that day also gloriously pointed forward to a day when access to God would be fully opened for all of his people. 
Thus the writer of Hebrews says in verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. Note the words, not yet, in verse 8. The tabernacle system of worship pointed to God's desire to have fellowship with his people. Fellowship that would one day be open to all of his people. The old tabernacle shows that the way was barred because the curtain kept the priests from the holy of holies. But the author of Hebrews here in verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9 says that the Holy Spirit is now indicating the opposite, that the way to God is finally open. He's pointing to the fact that if, if the old covenant was still functional in this present age, we would still not have access to God. He's going to address that more starting in verse 11. But first he says in verses 9 and 10, he says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. You know, all these priestly duties were prescribed, but even when the priests were able to follow them perfectly, they could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You know, God has created every person with a conscience. You know, it is the guilt of sin that keeps us from drawing near to God. You say, wait, wait, I can think of all these other theological reasons. I agree, those are there. But go back into the garden and think of after Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They fled from the voice of God. Their conscience was guilty before their maker. And the old covenant had no way to correct this. All the priestly work done under the old covenant, the offerings and, and the sacrifices could only cleanse the person outwardly so that they could join in with the rest of God's people in worship and prayer. These sacrifices, these offerings cleansed only their bodies removing ceremonial defilement and qualifying them for life in the community of God's people. But their consciences were never fully and finally and forever cleansed from the defiling power of guilt that was the result of sin. F.F. Bruce comments here, he says, quote, the really effective barrier to a man or woman's free access to God is an inward and not a material one. It exists in the conscience. It is only when the conscience is purified that one is set free to approach God without reservation and offer him acceptable service and worship, end quote. All of the old covenant arrangements with the sacrifices and all of the rituals were all given to point to the one who was coming, who was able to perfect the conscience and to provide complete access to God. The author speaks of this time as the time of reformation, which he transitions in this third part of his argument and speaks of these eternal blessings. Let's see how he closes this in verses 11 through 14 here in our text this morning. We read, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, 
purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, if you are visiting us this morning and you walked in and you went, what is all this about the old covenant? What are we describing dimensions and all these other things? Because it all pointed to this. It all set us up to point to Christ. Beloved, how sweet is the author's transition here in verse 11. But when Christ appeared. He says, good things have now come. Have you ever stopped to consider the day and time that you live in? All the pictures of the old covenant pointed to Christ and they've now been inaugurated in Christ's coming. We live on this side of it. What a glorious day and time. The author of Hebrews puts on display Christ's work. He points to it in verses 12 through 14. Let's look at those again. It speaks of he entered once into the holy places Speaking of Christ, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, or sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In these three verses, four times he mentions blood. And in so doing, he is pointing out the superiority and the greatness of the blood of Christ. He begins in verse 12 here, speaking of Jesus' entrance into the holy places. Whereas the earthly priest brought the blood of animals, Jesus brought the sacrifice of himself that is far more valuable than any animal. Jesus offered his own blood, which means he surrendered his own life in death for the sake of his people. By laying down his own perfect sinless life. He entered once for all into the presence of God on behalf of his people. And as the Lamb of God, spotless and without blemish, his sacrifice secured eternal redemption. Both of these words, eternal and redemption, they set Christ's ministry apart from that of the previous high priests. His work, unlike theirs, is not temporary. It is everlasting. The redemption that Christ secured includes both forgiveness of sins and deliverance from sin's penalty, which is death. Christ's blood was a ransom, the price of redemption. Beloved, we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. The author of Hebrews here speaks of the blood that was shed under the law of the covenant. He says in verse 13, he says that the blood of goats and of bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. You know, the blood of animals, they did sanctify in a sense the worshiper. The worshiper who was unclean and they restored to them fellowship with God and the Israelite society. And so those sacrifices restored the unclean to ceremonial cleanliness and therefore to the religious life of the nation. But it was an outward cleansing and it was unable to cleanse the inner man. Recall what the author of Hebrews already said in verse 9, that these sacrifices and rituals under the old covenant, they could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 
But there was a better blood that they all pointed to. A blood that would be able to cleanse the inner man. A blood that would restore true fellowship between God and his people. A blood that would perfect the conscience of the worshiper. A blood that would enable God's people to enjoy him and to serve him with their lives. This is what the author is saying in verse 14. He is showing the superiority of the blood of Christ. He argues, if the blood of animals could do an outward cleansing, how much more effective is the blood of Christ? After all, Christ's blood represents a better sacrifice, one that is without blemish. His perfect life and his Ability to humble himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, was empowered by the eternal spirit of God. And as the son of God, his blood is of infinite value. It's his blood that is the appointed means of salvation, of what God has appointed Jesus, the anointed one, the promised one, the Christ. He came into the world with an objective. Recall what the angel of the Lord told Joseph before Jesus was born. The angel of the Lord told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus did not come and that by chance some might be saved. He came to save his people from their sins. That's why the Bible so wonderfully declares that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, Ephesians 1, 7, that we are justified by his blood and are thus saved from God's wrath, Romans 5, 9. But in addition to being saved from our sins, we also have our consciences purified. Listen to the promise that God gave through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 33, verse 8, God said, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Notice what God said. It's not just forgiveness of sins, but also cleansing from the guilt of sin. Remember those two barriers we mentioned earlier between the worshiper of God that were under the old covenant? One was that there was this curtain, this veil that showed that there was not access to God, that only the high priest can go through once a year. But there was also a second barrier mentioned in verse 9, a guilty conscience from sin. Think about when Jesus offered his blood upon that cross. When he laid down his life on Calvary, something amazing happened within the temple. Remember what it was? That curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the place where God dwelt, that curtain was torn. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read the very moment that Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What was God doing? Welcoming his people into himself through Christ's blood. The implications of that veil being torn are profound and they are glorious. It is through the blood of Jesus that we now have full and direct access to God. That we can come before him without fear. For our guilt has been removed. And our debt has been paid in full. This means that our consciences have been purified by the blood of Christ. So let me ask you a question. Are there sins in your life that you continually feel the crushing weight of guilt from? 
things you wonder, how could I have done such a thing? But we know from God's word and from the power of the blood is that, beloved, you are washed in the blood. You have been cleansed. Your conscience is now purified. You are free from all condemnation. This is the truth of God's word. This is what has taken place through the blood of Christ. And so then we must ask ourselves, and why do some of us feel such overwhelming guilt from past sin? Simply put, because we misunderstand the blood of Christ. Yes, it brings forgiveness of sins, but it also frees us from the guilt of sin. To hold on to shame and to hold on to guilt from past sins is to limit the power of the blood of Christ. Beloved, we are free in Christ. We have been forgiven. We have been cleansed by his blood. And now we are free in Christ. The Bible tells us now we are to walk in that newness of life. Not looking back, but looking ahead. Keeping our eyes fixed on the author and the finisher of our faith. Look, what we learn in this passage before us is that God, we see God's desire to have us in fellowship with himself that it's been brought to fruition by the precious blood of Christ. And though God has done this all to the praise of his glorious grace, through the blood of his son Jesus, he now calls all of us who believe in his name into priestly service. The blood of Christ has freed us freed us so that we can joyfully serve the living God. Peter writes about it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Look, we need to realize that the blood of Christ was offered not simply for our own benefit. His blood purchased a people for God, for his name's sake, for his glory. Listen to one, how one scholar put it. He said this, quote, When we consider the wonderful work of grace that has brought us salvation, the shedding of Christ's precious blood, we need to ask, what is this for? The purpose is not simply our own benefit. It is not merely that we should escape a deserved judgment, much less that we should have a nice, quiet, affluent Christian existence. The purpose is that the living God might have a fitting priesthood for the service and praise of his glorious name. This cleansing in Christ's blood is not the end, but only the beginning for the Christian, end quote. God created us and God has redeemed us so that we might serve him and reflect his glory. Now you might sit there and say, this sounds pretty self-serving of God. What a self-serving act that he has done. But we must realize that it is only when we are doing what we were created for that we find purpose and joy and fulfillment. And isn't there an epidemic out there of people who are just lost? I don't know what my purpose is. Depression is running rampant in our society. Because people are looking for purpose. God has created us. And beloved, he has redeemed us. Listen to the way Charles Spurgeon put this. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, to serve the living God is necessary to the happiness of a living man. For this end we were made and we miss the design of our making if we do not honor our maker. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
If we miss that end, we ourselves are terrible losers. The service of God is the element in which alone we can fully live, end quote. Now, when Spurgeon says we're losers, it's not in our modern-day vernacular. We're like, loser. He's saying we are completely missing out. We've totally missed it. And so we need to understand what serving God is and what serving God is not. The author of Hebrews speaks about the blood of Christ purifying our conscience from dead works. Dead works are those things that we have tried to do to try to earn God's favor, to try to earn his forgiveness. They're the quote unquote, the, the good things that we try in response to our feelings of guilt. The Bible makes it clear that all of these actions are futile. They can never earn God's forgiveness. They cannot pay the debt for sin. The service that God desires comes from those whom he has redeemed, those who he's redeemed through the blood of his son. It is this service that is born out of a heart of gratitude for the love and grace of God that has been demonstrated through the shedding of the blood of Christ that was poured out for such sinners as us. The Apostle Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Thank the Lord that he did not finish there because we would not inherit the kingdom of God. But he continues in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Beloved, this is the powerful work of the blood of Jesus. Sinners become saints. The unrighteous become righteous. Enemies of God become friends of God. Rebels become followers. The proud become humble. The self-serving become servants of all. Man-pleasers are transformed into God-pleasers. The aimless find purpose. The anxious receive peace. The downcast find hope. The weak receive strength. Mourning turns in to joy. <laughs> Think of the mighty work of our Savior's blood. But all of these blessings are for those who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And his blood is not efficacious for all. It is for those who call upon his name. For it is his name that is the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. Remember that lampstand in the tabernacle? It pointed to the true light. Jesus himself, who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, John 8, 12. That bread on the table in the tabernacle, along with the manna that came from heaven, pointed forward to Jesus, who proclaimed, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, John 6, 35. That mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, where the blood of atonement was sprinkled, pointed forward to Jesus' blood that fully and completely atones for sin. The altar of incense that was in the tabernacle, it pointed forward to the intercessory prayers of Jesus that sustain us in God's presence. Beloved, it is all about Jesus. You must come 
to him. If you have not yet called upon his name through repentance and faith in the gospel, then you are to turn to him now. Turn to the one whose blood has all the power to cleanse you from your sins. Not some of your sins, but all of your sins. And to purify your conscience so you can serve the living God. Now the 19th century hymn, Nothing But the Blood, joyfully speaks of this glorious cleansing. In it we read, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And throughout that hymn, the glorious chorus rings out. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you are here this morning, you hear these truths about Christ, and perhaps you already know these truths about Christ, but you have never repented and submitted yourself to the Lordship of Jesus, today is the day to come to Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is promised to no man. And so may his spirit humble you and draw you to the Savior. And beloved church, fellow saints who are covered in the blood of Christ, may the blood of Christ continue to keep you in awe of his matchless love. May it cause you to serve him with fervor in the power of his spirit. Why? Because your sins are forgiven. Your conscience has been purified. And you are now free to serve the living God with all of your redeemed life that he has graciously purchased by the blood of his son. Before I close this morning in prayer, let's go ahead and bow our heads. Let's think upon how the Lord has ministered to us through his word this morning. Father, I come before you with the rest of the saints here who are purchased by the blood of your son, and we thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you for the infinite worth of his blood. We thank you for the redemptive work of his blood. We praise you for the power of his blood to remove our sins and to cleanse our conscience. Father, help us that we would never take his blood for granted. Help us that our lives would be a reflection of our gratitude for his shed blood. Father, we know that we have been purchased with a price, the blood of Jesus. And we are now to serve him with all of our being. We ask, O oh God, that you would strengthen us by your spirit to live in a manner worthy of the cross of Christ. It's in his glorious name that we pray. Amen.